You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner. Uh, It's entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, 14 lectures uh, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is the last lecture, Lecture 14, given in Stuttgart on the 27th of December, 1910. The spirit whose incorporation enables the human soul to keep developing as the world progresses, is an eternal one. But the way in which it lives and comes to expression in what human beings can feel, love, and create on earth is new in each new age. And that is precisely the task of human beings in the progression of the world, to enable the spirit to assume these many consecutive forms through which it climbs up the ladder to the perfection of which we have an inkling, and of which we should actually have no more than an inkling, which we do not want to compress into clear concepts. If we think about the spirit and its development in the course of humanity in this way, then eternity and transience appear before our soul's eye, E-Y-E. And in the specific cases, as they keep appearing everywhere in life, we can see how the eternal appears in the transient, how it comes to expression in the transient in order then to disappear again and reassert itself in ever new forms. We can also experience the symbols of Christmas as they surround us here as something which belongs to past forms of seeing the eternal in the external world in symbolic form. For truly, When we go out in the second half of December in our present time, particularly into the streets of our cities, and see out there the splendor of Christmas and everything that invites us into homes to celebrate Christmas, then it is painful for eyes which still have an aesthetic sense when they see these things spread out in the Christmas market and see zooming through them what cannot basically zoom through Christmas trees and Christmas symbols automobiles, electrical trams, and so on. In a certain sense, these things no longer belong together in the way they can be experienced today. We feel the whole matter even more deeply when we visualize what this Christmas festival has become for many of the people who, in the cities, want to be the pillars of education in the present. A festival of presence. A festival which has retained little of the warmth, of the thorough depth of feeling which existed in connection with this festival in a not yet very distant past. It has become a festival of presence. The things which what we call our anthroposophical worldview, our anthroposophical understanding, want to give us should once again include the very warm sentiments and feelings which passed through the soul on the high feast days of the old church's year. And we should learn to understand once again what a necessity it is for us, what a necessity it is for our souls at certain times, 
to feel the full connection with the great world out of which human beings are born to renew our intellectual and feeling forces, but also our moral forces. For the Christmas festival was at one time a festival in which all morality, all humanness could be renewed, spreading a warmth in its symbols which is hardly possible to understand any longer in the mundaneness of today, the prosaic life of today. But for us, putting ourselves in these symbols could be something which can place before our soul a little of the sensations, the sentiments, the feelings which we otherwise can have toward this resurrection, which we sense as the anthroposophical resurrection of human beings, and which we can therefore also have toward the birth of the anthroposophical spirit in our soul. And there is a kind of connection between the older thoughts about the festival of Christ's birth and the newer anthroposophical thoughts about the birth of our anthroposophical ideas and sentiments, the whole of the anthroposophical spirit in the manger of our heart. There is such a relationship. And today it is perhaps the anthroposophist who is most likely to be able to immerse himself or herself in what was felt for long periods of time, particularly at the Christian Christmas festival, which it will be possible to feel once again, when something similar will be born out of the atmosphere which already surrounds us today, out of the atmosphere of materialism in the present time. But in wanting to have such anthroposophical feelings about the Christmas festival, we cannot restrict ourselves just to what was or is the Christian Christmas festival. Wherever we may look in the world, and however far we look into distant periods of the past, something which can be compared, which can come close in thoughts and feelings to the feeling of Christmas, something of that nature, has basically always existed everywhere. We will not go far today. We will only go to the feelings and sentiments which a person could have in our regions, in the regions of Central Europe, before the introduction of Christianity, which corresponded to those as the Christmas festival approaches today. Let us take a brief look back at the times before the introduction of Christianity in Europe, in which, in a comparatively rough climate, our ancestors in Europe had to provide for themselves in that they lived for the whole of the summer as a kind of herding or farming people in an intimate connection of their sentiments and feelings with the whole great natural world, in devout prayer to the rays of the sun, in fervent worship, not in thought, but in feeling and devotion, in fervent reverence toward the great world. And when the old shepherd or cattle breeder in Europe was out in his rough fields, often in the burning hot sun, he then experienced not just something of outwardly physical nature, but he felt an intimate connection of his whole being with what shone toward him in the physiognomy of nature. He lived with his whole heart in nature. Not just that the physical rays of the sun were reflected in his eyes, in his heart the sunlight spiritually kindled a rejoicing about summer, which basically had its focus in the fires which then became St. John's fires. 
The whole of nature wanted to rejoice in human hearts. The spirit of nature resound from human hearts. That was how people felt throughout the year, and thus people also felt themselves in an intimate communality with the animal world which they cared for. Then autumn came, then came the times in which severe winter set in. I am thinking of the times in which severe winters spread across the land of the kind which people today can hardly imagine. Then all the livestock had to be slaughtered, leaving only what was absolutely necessary to keep. Then all outer life became silent. It was truly as if something held entry into human hearts, which we can call a kind of death, of darkness, in comparison to all the moods which passed through human hearts in the summer. These were the times in which there really was still an echo of ancient clairvoyant forces, particularly through the specific characteristics of the climate and nature which existed in Central Europe. The people who rejoiced in the summer as if nature itself was rejoicing in their hearts, these same people became silent and quiet in themselves in winter. As winter approached, they let arise in the interior something of the mood which should descend on human beings when they enter their own inner world in total disregard of the outer world in order to sense and feel the divine inside them. So it was nature itself which gave the ancient people of Europe the possibility to fully immerse themselves in their own interior from out of their life in the external world. Such a descent into death and darkness was experienced as November approached, for weeks as a festive period. It was experienced as the approach of what is called Yuletide. And what arose as a result of this mood is something which can really show us for how long, basically, the memory of the ancient clairvoyant states remained, particularly of all people in Central and Northern Europe. What then followed in the period in which approximately our January and February approaches was that people felt a harbinger of nature beginning to rejoice anew inside them, the new resurrection of nature. This they experienced like a harbinger of what they were to experience in the outer world at a time when snow still covered the fields, when icicles still hung on the trees, and nothing could yet be seen in nature to announce the joyous power, which then, before the joyous power announced itself, was still a complete being in oneself, resting in oneself. That was transformed in the soul in such a way that people were released from themselves. This intermediate stage, which was experienced by our ancestors in the approach of what we today call spring, was experienced in the way that the clairvoyant experiences his or her astral body, when this astral body is not completely purified and cleansed. It was experienced as if the spiritual horizon was filled with all kinds of animal shapes, and that is what these people also sought to express. They formed a transition for them from the actual profound festive mood of approaching winter and the mood which was to come over the soul again in the summer. It imitated symbolically what the human astral body shows 
imitated in boisterous games, in boisterous dances, in animal masks, the transition from completely resting within oneself to the joyous emergence into the greatness of nature. That is how it was. If we immerse ourselves in something like this, if we imagine that the sentiment of the people, the sense of the people across very wide circles, was immersed in such a mood, then we will understand how on this ground there also existed a feeling of plunging down into external physical darkness, into the external physical death of nature, how it was also fully experienced that just in this plunging down into the physical death of nature, into physical darkness, the highest light of the spirit can be given, and how the mood of plunging down into physical death is directly transformed into the boisterous mood which was given expression in animal masks, in boisterous dances and boisterous music. Yet there was not yet present a full feeling that if human beings are to find the supreme, the highest light, they must seek it in the innermost depths. But the inward devoted connection with all forces, with the whole interweaving and life of nature, created the ground into which could be lowered what was to be announced to humanity for its evolution through the Christ impulse. It was simply necessary to tell the sentiments and feelings of these people spread across the regions of Europe, not, however, in dry Philistine words, but in such a way that what one wanted to say spoke through symbols to the mind. It was simply necessary to make understood in the place where you plunge down into darkness, into the death of external nature, there you can find an eternal and everlasting light if you prepare your soul to feel in the right way. And this light was introduced into human development through what has come to appearance in human development in the mystery of Golgotha in the events in Palestine. It is characteristic that in the following centuries the stage was reached that in Europe the Christ impulse was felt most inwardly, most warmly in the Christ child, in the birth of Christ. If we want to assign any task at all to humanity in evolution, how should this task be seen? In no other way than that human beings have divine spiritual origins that they descended ever deeper from these divine spiritual origins, became more and more related to and interwoven with external physical matter, the external physical plane. But then we have to feel that human beings can again travel this path in reverse through the mighty impulse we call the Christ impulse, how they can reverse their course and in overcoming what has led them into the physical world, travel the path from below upward to spiritual heights. If we have these feelings, we can tell ourselves, in the way that the human eye, capital, is within the physical body, when what this human eye is like today, it has descended from divine spiritual heights and feels interwoven with and caught up in the world of the external physical plane. But something else underlies this I, what we might call an innocent I, below the sinful I. Where can we 
at least begin to encounter the I, which is not yet interwoven with the physical world. It is when we look back on our own life as it takes its course between birth and death, where we extend our memory back to the moment in which our ego consciousness appears at a certain point in our early years. The I is there. Even if people do not remember it, it is there and lives and weaves within us also where there is not yet a concept of the I. Where this I, as it looks around in the external world, interweaves with the physical plane, where there is not yet a concept of the I, but where the I is there, in the innocent state of the child, the I which can be there as an ideal, which should be achieved once again, but only once it has been imbued with everything which human beings can experience in the school of physical life on earth. And so the human heart can experience this ideal with inner warmth, even if sober reason may find it difficult to put into words. Become like your I when it does not yet have a concept of itself. Become like you could become if you were to escape into your childhood I. The childhood I then illuminates everything that is acquired by your later I. And in experiencing this, As an ideal, it shines in Jesus of Nazareth, into whom Christ was subsequently incarnated. On the basis of such feelings, we can understand how an intimate trait of human growth, of further human development, was able to take hold in the minds of the simplest people across the whole of Europe, when they saw the incarnation of the human being who could develop to incorporate Christ within himself. So we can see that it represented real progress, a mighty step forward, when the feelings associated with ancient Yuletide were introduced into the feelings which were associated with the festival celebrating the birth of Jesus. That was a mighty step forward. We might describe this step forward by saying, the light of Jesus Christ was lit in the darkness in which the soul was meant to collect itself in preparation of the jubilation and rejoicing of the new summer. We can find an echo of what actually happened in the people of Europe in what for the 19th century, or at least its second half, had become little more than the subject of scholarly researchers and collectors. We can find an echo still in the old Christmas plays, Such Christmas plays were already performed in a special way in ancient medieval times at around Christmas. They awoke all the feelings, all the things which the soul could have by way of life at about the same time in the same regions as could be experienced by people in still more ancient times when Yuletide approached as I characterized it just now. And if we look from the old Yuletide festivals I spoke about to the medieval Christmas plays, we can obtain a real feeling of the warm impulse which struck the people of Europe with Christianity. Yes, indeed, something very special here descended into hearts, into souls. It is now no longer as it was before. In the 19th century it had become nothing more 
than the subject matter for scholarly collectors. There is, nevertheless, something touching if one knew the older type of German philologist, German linguistic philologists, the philologists and researchers looking into myths, who immerse themselves in what has remained of Christmas plays from earlier centuries, not with indifference, but with love, with deep love. I myself had such a collector as a friend, who for a longer period was a professor at a school in Bratislava in the fifties and sixties of the last century. For a long time he undertook research there into the German population, which had ended up in the eastern part of Hungary from the west, and he was familiar with the peculiar attraction of the customs and the language of the Zips Germans, still living in northern Hungary at the time, who have been Magyarized since then. He learned on one occasion that there were still Christmas plays alive in a lonely village near Bratislava. And he, I am referring to my old friend Karl Julius Schröer, went there and tried to investigate what still lived there in the people from ancient times. He later told me many things about the wonderful impressions which he obtained of the last remnants which had remained of Christmas plays from much, much older periods. In one village there was an old man. In his family there was the tradition, as a custom, that when Christmas time approached he gathered together those in the village who were suitable to perform a Christmas play, a Christmas play which was intended to present in a simple form what we possess in the Christmas story, what the Gospels tell us as the Christmas story, as the story of Herod and the three kings. But if we want to understand the very special nature of such Christmas plays, then we have to have a concept of what life was like in more ancient times among the simple people. That has now passed and should not be brought back either. If I want to describe what is important in this respect, then I could put it no differently than to say, Do not the snowdrops have a certain season when they blossom, or the lily of the valley or violets, by placing themselves in the hole of a macrocosm? They can, of course, be grown in a greenhouse at different times, but it is actually painful to experience the blossoming violet displaced into a different season from the one in which it is placed into the whole macrocosm. There is little understanding of these things in our present time, but it is a similar situation with regard to the people in older times. What people in certain periods through the Middle Ages were able to experience when autumn and the Christmas period approached, when the dark nights arrived, what people were able to experience then, in such a way that the experience of their heart placed itself in the context of what lived outside in nature, that these experiences were in harmony with the snow outside and the snowflakes and the icicles on the trees. What was felt then could only be experienced in the Christmas period. It was a very special mood. It was something which gave the soul strength and healing power for the whole of the year. It really did refresh the soul. It was a real force. When decades ago it was still possible to observe the last remains of these feelings in some places, these feelings did come to appearance. And I myself can say, as a thoroughly external appearance on the physical plane, that it was possible to find the most immoral 
worthless lads, who, when the days grew shorter, did not dare in their souls to be impious. Those who got involved in fights the most fought the least, and those who were less involved in fights did not fight at all in the Christmas period. It was a real force which lived in the souls. And the period in the weeks around Holy Christmas was immersed in this whole world of feeling. What was it that people felt? What people experienced was indeed compressed in sentiments, in feelings. Descent of human beings from divine spiritual heights to the deepest point on the physical plane. Reception of the Christ impulse. Reversal of the path of human beings. Ascent to divine spiritual heights. That was felt in everything connected with the Christ event. That is why people liked to present not just the Christian events, but just as the feast day of Adam and Eve on 24 December was linked with the day of Jesus' birth on 25 December, the Paradise play was performed, with directly afterward the Christmas play, presenting the impulse of the ascent of human beings once again to divine spiritual heights. It was a profound experience when, in the Paradise play, the name Eva was pronounced, the mother of humankind from whom human beings originated, who then descended into the valley of physical life. That was listened to on one day, and on the next day the reversal of that path of humanity. That is already indicated in the sound which was intended to express this reversal, Ave Maria. Ave was experienced as the reversal of Eva. Ave, Eva. It affected people profoundly when they heard something like the words, for example, which sounded innumerable times in ears and hearts from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century onward, and which were comprehended. What we would say approximately is as follows. Ave, star of the ocean, divine young mother and eternal virgin, happy portal of heaven that you are, accepting the Ave as a gift from Gabriel, you became our foundation of peace, in that you reversed the name Eva. And in what was performed as the Paradise Play, people experienced something which had to be immersed in a Christmas, a holy mood, that was indeed deeply felt. And we may say this among anthroposophists, does this not remind us of the attitude toward truth in the mysteries? It was something greater there, of course. When we here describe the way in which the players in the Christmas plays rehearsed and prepared themselves, their behavior before and during the Christmas plays, we know that the mysteries are thought of in such a way that the truth was not received in the mundane way which can be filled with any human mood. Anyone who feels something of the sacred nature of truth will find it a nonsense that truth could really be found in the prosaic, mundane lecture halls of the present. In the latter, people have no idea that truth must be sought with a cleansed, purified, with a prepared soul, and that a soul will not find the truth if it has not first been sanctified in its innermost part, has not been prepared in its feelings. People today no longer have any idea of this, 
in a time in which materialism sees truth as the most prosaic thing. In the mysteries, truth was approached after the soul had passed through the trials, testing it for its purity, its freedom, its fearlessness. And we might well say, does it not remind us of this when the old man with whom Carl Julius Schröer became acquainted demanded of the singers he gathered together that they adhere to the old rules? Anyone who has lived in a village knows what the first rule means. The first rule was that during all of the preparations, none of the players were allowed to visit a floozy. That means something incredible in a village. It means being immersed in the devoutness of what one was intending to do. No one was allowed to sing a ribald song during the rehearsal period. That was another rule. No one was allowed to want anything other than to lead a good and honorable life. That was the third rule. And the fourth point was that the performers had to follow in all respects the person in whose hand the tradition of the Christmas play lay, which was only reluctantly disclosed. These things were collected in the second half of the nineteenth century, and the old feelings disappeared. Subsequently I had one more experience of the devoutness, the immense inwardness, with which those who, as scholars, still had a connection with the people, and remained, for example, in the scattered linguistic outposts of Hungary, collected the old plays and songs. I came across a play about Herod when I was in Sibiu at Christmas time, where the teachers at the school in Sibiu had spent a lot of time collecting such plays. Readers aside, Sibiu is spelled S-I-B-I-U, and the readers aside. And so it was still possible in the second half of the nineteenth century to become acquainted with the collectors of what still lived on the ground of what I characterized with regard to Yuletide. Do not think of it in theoretical terms, but imagine this warm, magic touch of Christmas mood as it lives in these Christmas plays. It gives us at the same time a concept of the regeneration of the human being, of the belief of human beings through the Christ impulse in something divine-spiritual. Rehearsing such Christmas plays, it could indeed be something very instructive for us in our present time, in which the idea of the way that art grows out of devoutness, out of religion, out of wisdom, has long been lost. Today, when people like to see art as something separated from everything else, when art has degenerated into formalism, for example, Today we could learn a lot from the whole way that art was a blossom of humanity. As simple as it appeared in the Christmas plays, it was a blossom of the whole person's being. First, the lads who performed the plays had to be devout. First, they had to take into their whole being something like an extract of the whole Christmas mood. Then they had to learn to speak rhythmically in a strictly regulated way. Today, when the art of speaking in the old sense has been completely lost, when people no longer have any idea how rhyme plays a tremendous role and rhythm plays such a role, and how every moment of these people, who otherwise wielded the threshing flail, was rehearsed down to the very last detail, how they were completely immersed for weeks in rhythm, intonation, and devotion to what they were meant to perform. An awful lot could be learned 
from this particularly for a real understanding of art today. Today, when artistic speaking, for example, has been lost to such an extent that barely more than the meaning is spoken, whereas at that time the particularly attractive thing in these Christmas plays was that rhythm, tone, gesture, the whole human being spoke. It was truly something great even to see the last remnants. When the days of Christmas were over, the three kings went about at no other time than after Christmas. I myself can recall how I saw the three kings going about in the villages. They went from house to house. They had a star on scissors. It was flung far by extending the scissors. Flinging the star stood in harmony with the rhythm of these three kings dressed in the most primitive way, who, however, prepared a proper festive mood through their whole manner and in the way they carried these things among the people at the right time, in the way they lived in it in self-abandonment. Our time can no longer understand this unless a mood can be reawoken, which reflects that from out of what is to awaken in us as the life of the Spirit, we can be presented with something of a kind of timeless play, as has to be the case in our time, implemented in art through anthroposophy. This cannot then, however, be tied to festive periods, but must be connected only with the eternal, with the eternal in the human soul, which is not tied to the seasons. Something which became a practical event for these souls could come to life in us, the Christ impulse in a particular time. Indeed, in a certain respect, we are already deeply in a time in which materialism in the external world has taken such a great hold of all circles that quite different impulses are needed to renew the Christ impulse from the simple impulses which were at work in the Middle Ages. A renewal of the inward nature of human beings is needed, something which is the endeavor of anthroposophy by raising the profoundest forces of the human soul, forces which are quite different still from those which we encountered in the symbols of Christmas, in the festive customs of Christmas. And as truthfully as we can learn specifically through anthroposophy to feel what went through hearts like a magic breath when the paradise and Christmas plays were performed, all the things which went through hearts in these festive periods, as truthfully as we can experience this through anthroposophy, as honestly we should face the other fact that the eternal spirit must come to expression in ever new forms in human development. That is why the sight of the symbols of Christmas should be an incentive for us to assimilate in a Christmas mood what the world historical mood in the anthroposophical way of understanding can be in our hearts. After all, the person who experiences the secrets of Christmas Eve in the right way will look with hope to what follows as the second festival after the Christmas festival. We'll look at the Easter festival as the festival of resurrection, where what is born at Christmas emerges victorious. And thus we are convinced of the necessity that all spiritual life, all cultural life as such, must be imbued, saturated, by what we call the anthroposophical way of understanding, anthroposophical feeling and thinking and intent. 
in the future, my dear friends, there will either be a spiritual science or there will be no science at all, only outer technical practice. In the future, there will either be a religion imbued with anthroposophy or there will be no religion at all, only external churchdom. In the future, there will be art imbued with anthroposophy or there will be no arts at all because arts whose aim is to be separated from the life of the human soul will have a brief ephemeral existence. So we look at something which shines toward us with the same certainty as the prophecy which is given us through Theodora, entitled The Portal of Initiation, about the renewal of the sight of Christ. With such certainty, we have in our souls the resurrection of anthroposophical spirit in science, religion, art, and all human life. The great Easter festival of humanity stands before us as we sense it in our souls. We can understand that there will once again be mangers, once again solitary, still quite solitary places in which will be born in childhood form what is to be resurrected among human beings. In the Middle Ages, people were taken into the houses and shown the manger, an imitation of the stable with ox and ass, with the Jesus child, his parents and the shepherds. They were told, here lies the hope of the future of humankind. Let what we cultivate, what we intend within our anthroposophical places of work, be modern mangers in our soul, in which, under the guidance of the one we call Jesus Christ, the new spirit is resurrected, today still in childhood form, today still at the stage of being born in the individual anthroposophical branches of work, in the mangers, but bearing within itself the pledge that he will be victorious, that as human beings we will be able to celebrate through him the great Easter festival of humankind, the festival of resurrection of humankind in a new spirit. In the spirit we sense, we strive for as the anthroposophical spirit. The end of lecture 14 and the end of the book, the 14 lectures of Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science by Rudolf Steiner, Collected Works, Volume 125, translated by Christian von Arnhem.